Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. My guest today is Tony Jamis. He is the CEO and co-founder of Oyster, which has 700 plus employees in 80 plus different countries, and they're doing business in 150 different countries. So it's a good thing that Tony has some experience working across cultural borders. He has lived in 20 different places around the world during his lifetime and currently finds himself as an expat from Lebanon, living in the beautiful island destination of Cyprus. So we touched on a lot in this conversation. We probably went a little deeper on the remote work stuff than we normally do, but that is because Tony is literally one of the top voices in the world on the remote work subject. They're helping individuals get hired without borders. They're helping companies hire people from around the world, and they themselves are a fully remote company. So I would be remiss not to dive deep on that subject with him. But we also get into his life moving from Lebanon, going to seek opportunity in other countries, and eventually finding himself in this beautiful country, Cyprus, and a little bit about what life's like there. So a lot packed into this one. I loved this conversation, and I hope you will as well. Please help me in welcoming Tony to About Abroad. I was just wishing that I would have hit record like uh, 30 seconds earlier than we ju- than we just did, Tony, because you just told me that you moved like 20 times in the last like 20 years. Did I did I hear you correctly? And then I was like, wait, just hold that. I'm going to hit record and we'll go from there. <laughs> yes, Chase. Uh, unfortunately, I moved a lot in the last 20 years, not always uh, from country to country, sometimes within a country or within a city, but I've, I've moved too much. And I came to realize that that was not sustainable either for uh, being a parent, uh, but also but also from a lifestyle standpoint. Like the more I move, the more I have to rebuild my life somewhere else and get a new doctor, get a new gym. And then it kind of interrupted the flow of my life. And, and, I, and I decided uh, a couple of years ago that I'm, I'm done moving. That's Did you, that was much. there a point in your life where you, desired that move? Like, were you kind of craving that, that lifestyle of being in different places or, or did it just so happen your career kind of took you in those directions? I was very career driven and, and also personally excited to, you know, I moved from Lebanon when I was a teenager to France and I moved to the UK in my, my early 20s and then to London and then I moved to the US multiple times back to the UK. So I lived in Switzerland for a year. I lived in Morocco for six months. So all of this really, uh, I was looking forward to them, excited to, to get to know their about this new lifestyle and the new new life, um, and and at the same time, like it, it it was totally unnecessary. You know what I mean? Like today, when you think about it, I'm a future of work activist. I, I advocate for a better future of work. I think remote work is a game changer for for people like me. Like we can we can live where we want to live. We don't have to couple our job location with where we want to live. And and that gave me massive amount of freedom. Even before the pandemic, I was uh, um, after I exited my first business, it took some time off, and I was walking with my co-founder today. At 
oyster, Jack, uh, before we even think about starting a company together, and he asked me the question, if you want to work, what, you know, what are the characteristics of that work? And one of the criteria is, I don't want to travel that much. I want to be there present for my family. I want to have the freedom to where, where I want to live. I want to get closer to home. I want to live in nature. Um, I used to change content every month between San Francisco and London for years to, to be present in the office and do meetings that could be done on Zoom. Uh, I, I don't want that anymore. I mean, I've also looked at um, my carbon footprint uh, when I took some time off and 90% of my carbon footprint was air travel. So if I'm a, if I'm a leader of any organization today, I feel the responsibility and the desire to, 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 to cut any unnecessary travel uh, and uh, do everything I can to be the best remote work CEO in the world. Just because uh, I cannot justify for this planet that I could have done this meeting without traveling and, 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 I, and, I, and I traveled, right? So it hurts my heart. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the, the aspects of the, the whole future of work conversation that actually flies a bit under the radar uh, in talking about it in terms of like the mainstream media and you see ton, you see, you know, clickbait headlines all the time talking about remote work in some facet or another. And this is one of my favorite aspects of the whole future of work movement is the positive effect it can have on sustainability and not just sustainability in terms of like environment and, you know, in, in the, the natural sense, but I mean, sustainability in terms of what it means for developing countries, sustainability in terms of what it means for families. Um, you know, the, the UN laid out those 17 um, initiatives that they wanted us to work towards. And if you, you can connect the dots between what remote work's doing and and those 17 initiatives pretty, pretty closely, actually. And so it's really interesting to see, like you say, you're a remote work act activist. I think that's like uh, the understatement of the of the year. <laughs> you're out there pushing that in, in the very front and, and uh, of this whole thing. So it's um, it's cool to hear people like you talking about that, I think is is the point that I'm getting at. And it's not just about making businesses run or making people, you know, giving people the opportunity to work from home and more flexibility. These are all great things, but it, there's some deeper levels to this whole thing too. Yeah. And, and also it's about freedom for me, freedom of location, freedom of where you want to work. If you want to live in a city, that's your choice. If you don't want to live in the city, you should have the choice as well. Uh, and also if you, you know, if you, if you want to live in, in multiple countries and, and travel as well as working, I think that should be also possible. Right. So, so, uh, subject to whatever compliance requirement there are in that country. Uh, but essentially this, it's really about freedom. Uh, and, uh, that's why there's no going back on this. Uh, the best talent in the world today know that they have the degree of freedom. They know they can be effective working from anywhere for the right organization. And therefore, they're going to gravitate toward these companies that make them successful no matter what they are. And that's why the future is distributed. Now, the CEO of Oyster, you mentioned your previous company that you exited. And, and I, it wasn't that that long ago. You know, it just probably seems like a long time ago between those two. But you mentioned flying back and forth, you know, changing continents every month. Um, and, and you can imagine the toll that that takes on you as a person. But then, you know, when you're talk about having a family and, and all of that. And, and so reflecting back on it, like you're in this position now, the vantage point that you have now at, at Oyster, where you started it from the very beginning with the remote work uh, pillar being in place from the very beginning and knowing that you weren't going back to that lifestyle. Like, is it kind of interesting for you to think back on what your mindset was when, you know, you know, Skype existed, for example, you could have technically used it, but you flew back and forth. Uh, like what, what do you think changed for you as a, as a leader? I think many, many things have changed. Uh, one is 
is uh, is, is really having um, this principle of work should support your life and not the other way around. Like it's, for me, it started with from a selfish point where I needed uh, this freedom to live where I want. I need flexibility to be there for my children when they when they are small, uh, and and um, and so so and be effective and be productive. So that's kind of what change is is really uh, this desire to work on my terms. And it turned out that these terms are not only my terms; they are universal terms. Like everybody wants flexibility, everyone wants freedom, everybody wants productive, everybody wants to cut down all the unnecessary stresses that comes from work. Um, so that's kind of the change in, in leadership: is how do I not only uh, be the best CEO I can, but I need to also model the way. How can I be the best remote worker in my company uh, so that people can see that this is this is a, a commitment to them as well to my how, how distributed is Oyster now? Like, what's the how, what's the headcount and rough? country distribution? So we are a two and a half years old company. We are 650 people today, uh, distributed in 80 countries. Uh, we are gender um, equal. We are 50% women, 50% men in the business, including on the executive team. We have engagement levels that are in the top quartile of any any uh, of our peers. We see back companies in our stage. So we're uh, not only we've created this highly engaging uh, uh, work environment, uh, we call it workplace, um, uh, but also we uh, uh, we change people's life. Like we have, we have uh, employees that we hire from all these countries that they used to commute. Give me the story of, of Christina. She she is one of our uh, employees in the Philippines in Manila. She used to commute four hours a day to go to work. She's a mother of two, and um, and the fact now that she can work on her on her terms, she can work from home, has totally changed her life. And this is why we do what we do every day. That's why I, although I'm I'm the CEO of this organization, I have to develop my work style. I have to be modeling the way because uh, it's a commitment to everybody. Yeah. What is, what is the way? Like, like I think I think there's a lot of negative publicity out there about remote work. And I, my theory on this, I'd be curious to hear what you think. But I think that there was this you know, massive shift towards distributed work during the pandemic. And a lot of companies just knee-jerk reaction. Hey, we got to figure this out. We don't really have a choice. We just got to figure out how to make remote work work for now. We'll, we'll figure out the details later. And then there was this a percentage of them that come around and say, okay, we're going to actually, we're going to make this work. We, you know, we're not real stoked about it as as leaders, but we'll figure it out. And then there's this other subset that's now getting to this point where they're like, hey, this can actually work and we can make it work optimal for not just for us as leadership, not just for the company, but for our individuals on the ground as well. And we can do this at a really high level and everyone can win. Um, and, and the ones that are putting that level of intentionality behind it are are really succeeding and showcasing how this thing can be done. So from your standpoint, like, like what does it mean to, to do it the right way? And how do you exemplify that as the leader? Yeah. So Chase, this the move from an organization from not working remotely to working more remotely is a, a path of resilience and improvement for any organization. That's why they, you get better by going through that path. Because what is more difficult to achieve remotely, three things. One is um, the ability to build strong, trusting relationships. That's why building trust is harder than setting clear goals and expectation and, and, and making sure that people understand what success looks like, no matter where they are at the level of the organization. Uh, because you're not measuring presence, right? You're measuring outputs. Uh, you have to be very data-driven, more data-driven uh, when it comes to goals and, and, and success measurement than, than, uh, than in office. And thirdly, is you have to be very clear about how you work together. What are the tools and the rules uh, how, and, and train people on this? So essentially, this move from being in office to being remote and distributed forces you as an organization to become better and intentional at building trust. It forces you to be clear about goals and responsibility and how you measure 
through them. And you have to be clear around how do you work together. And guess what? These are the three things that make great companies great companies. So, you know, essentially, yeah, this that's why. That's why there's no going back on this. Companies that are making these steps forward and they are making them. There's many companies at Oyster. We help over a thousand customers. We're adding 150 accounts every month. Uh, these are companies that are adopting global hiring and are committing to, to a better future for it. Yeah, that's, I think that's what's really exciting about this whole thing. And it, and it brings me back to like one of the main reasons I wanted to, I, I was so excited to get you on the show is because this whole concept of global mobility, like we, we've talked a lot about what remote work can do on an individual level and a, and a, you know, a more macroeconomic level, but there's, there's somewhere in between there, which is like allowing someone like uh, Christine, who you just mentioned to like change her, her life. And then you have people in developing countries um, who, who suddenly have access to like real salaries and, and get to collaborate with people from around the world. And that sort of raises their ceiling as far as what they believe that they can accomplish. And, and so I see this time and time again, like with individuals, with, with whole economies, with uh, ideas being born when you get people from around the world in these, in these virtual workspaces. And I think it just changes the whole dynamic and it opens up so many opportunities. And, and global mobility is one of those, right? Like people have the opportunity to choose their new set of circumstances. Where you live used to mean, or where you were born and where you live, used to mean a whole lot more than it does it does now. And you, having moved 20 different times, you know, you fought some of those battles early on before the, the world was so flat uh, as it is now. But does that does that part of the whole equation connect with you? You know, going back to the fact that you're you're from Lebanon, you've ended up you're you're just next door now in Cyprus, I believe, which is which is funny. You circled all the way back, pretty close to home there. Um, but I, does that part like uh, hit home with you? Absolutely. I mean, this is bigger than just a business opportunity. I mean, there's societal, economical impact that our seismic here. Uh, Brian Kaplan, the economist from George Mason University, he argues in his book, Open Borders, that if you remove the concept of borders from tenant mobility, essentially you can hire anyone anywhere, you can triple the world GDP. And we also know that there is there are 90 million jobs going unfulfilled in the West. Uh, according to BCG, that's 8.5 trillion economic loss. At the same time, you have over a billion knowledge worker coming into the workforce in the next 10 years, mostly from emerging economies. I can continue. You have, uh, if, you're, if you're a remote worker working for a company abroad, you can increase your pay from 50 to 150%. And we, we've measured that at Oyster. We have, we have a lot of data on people's pay by all these countries that we support, over 150 countries. We employ people in the um, disparity uh, between, for the same role, same experience among countries is shrinking for remote workers. So you can imagine, you know, 10 times from now, uh, you get to a world where it doesn't matter where you are when it comes to pay, pay right? so Obviously, we're not there yet, and there's a reality, economic reality that is hitting the floor right now. It's going to be, you know, two step forward, one step backward. These changes they don't happen overnight, but directionally, I'm very excited about. Yeah, touching headed. on that, actually, I, I read some data uh, about how remote work positively impacts the gender pay gap as well. You just mentioned the the 50 percent uh, balance that you've struck, which is incredible, um, and, and definitely something to, to celebrate because I think a lot of companies are still lacking lagging behind in that way, and um, putting some intentionality behind that's that's awesome. But that, there's some uh, some pretty nice stats out there that show that distributed companies tend to pay their female employees much closer to the exact same amount as their their male counterparts. Um, some by a, by a margin of like 20% difference. Uh, then, and you know you know why Chase? I think one of the reasons why I believe is because they look deeply at their yeah. compensation <laughs> philosophies. You know, so you're again as as a distributed company, you are you are forced to develop an opinion about how you're going to compensate people in all these countries, and and just being forced to ask that question will yield more. Uh, equitability and pay across countries, gender, across roles. So, so uh, you know, ju just by being 
forced to ask the question makes yeah, you yeah we have, we've, we've gone through this at Duist. we're much smaller uh, than than you guys are we're about a hundred people in 35 countries and we've gone through four rounds of of analyzing the way that we pay people and coming out with a new formula a new a new way to do this and we're and we're moving towards um, I don't I would actually be I'd love to know what you guys are doing but we're moving towards a system where we're just removing location completely and so I'm personally excited about that but you know there's some hurdles to overcome for us it's, I think especially when you have a system in place for for a long time it's a little bit harder to change it than it is to build it from the ground up um, even if we know what we want but you've got to fight through those those battles yeah for us actually we, we spend a lot of cycles on this and we're even productizing it as we speak uh, as part of the product experience but essentially we've gathered a lot of data uh from because we employ thousands of people in all these countries on behalf of our customers so we have a lot of data on our own employees as well and there's third-party data that we get and then we we created we we, we separated the world into different uh, bands and uh, what we do is if you are in a, let's say emerging economy we use the percentile uh to pay you more than if you are in an emerging economy so the we close the gap more uh, if you are in an emerging economy than if you are in tier one cities in the world right so we uh, so over time uh, we can play with that dial up or down uh, to continue to close that gap um and 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 this is this is actually going to be part of the product where we would guide our customers on what is a fair pay for somebody in that country for that role for that experience and we'll give you ranges uh to uh, to guide you towards uh yeah look pay. i mean look at this this is exemplifying exactly what you were saying like the the level of intentionality that has to be placed behind something as quote unquote simple as as pay you're forced to really analyze this and uh and and figure out how you can invent a better mousetrap uh, that works for this new way of working and when you've got people in 80 different countries i mean there there are some people from the outside looking in that would go i don't even understand how you can it's like mind-boggling to them even today and uh for you it just rolls off the tongue like it's just such a normal a normal way to work do you, do you feel like like two and a half years ago i mean it's oysters that's still relatively young like two and a half years ago would you have envisioned where you're at today so actually, Chase, uh, before I answer the question, we employ people in 150 countries, right, on behalf of our customers in total. So we 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 have, oh, we yeah. have you know even broader exposure to this complex employment uh, world. And to answer your question of expectation, um, well, I I knew that we are building something very intentional in the way we work and our human centricity. Um, I wasn't, uh, and I was forecasting pretty aggressive growth for our investors. Uh, but we we get very fortunate that the world. Ha- the world has moved faster to remote work than we expected. And that has accelerated our growth uh, probably five five times. And and that that I wasn't expecting. I've, you know, one thing that I, th- I think some of us in that, that space, that, that was certainly the case for us at Duist, we built Twist before the pandemic and thought that, uh, you know, oh, this is like a 10-year run to people caring about this word that we talk about all the time, asynchronous communication. Nobody's interested in this. And uh, all of a sudden, a couple years later, <laughs> everybody's talking about asynchronous communication. So uh, certainly expedited things, but uh, well, I'm glad it's I'm glad it's worked out. It's been very fun. I know we we spent a good portion of the conversation so far, you know, focused on that. It was inevitable that we would because I'm I'm fascinated. I love watching what you guys are doing, and uh, I know a lot of the audience is also interested in the whole remote work movement and hearing hearing from you about that. What I want to dive into because I don't know that you get a chance to do this very often, and um, and I think people are interested. Uh, I know I am. Is I, I want to kind of look back in Tony's life. You're you're here today, you're in Cyprus and, and you've landed here after 20 different moves around the world. And, but, but you started your journey in Lebanon and, and just kind of like walk through, like, like I'm, I'm very,
very curious about this because you now work at this intersection of global mobility, hiring remotely. Um, you're living abroad in a country that's trying to at attract remote talent, and you do a, a, some work on that on that uh, front as well. So I just kind of want to connect the dots. Eventually, we'll see if we ever get there. But um, but that's where I'm I'm coming from in this in this line of questioning, I guess. Uh, yes, Chase, and uh, uh, what um, what I've learned from all these moves I've made in the last uh, 20 years is that uh, is a definition of what it feels to be home. And and so for me, uh, I struggled a lot uh, with that question of what where is home. And uh, so I left I left my home country when I was 17. Obviously, it is a difficult move for anyone uh, to to move their their their, their community, uh, their culture behind, and move into a brand new country uh, for the first time. Um, so and, and that's why actually uh, immigrants have much harder time emotionally, uh, but also um, financially and also health. Like think about uh, if you, let's say you immigrate to the U.S. and suddenly your uh, your diet has to adapt to the Western diet, and you're back home, you'll be eating very balanced, and and you don't know you don't know how to manage that, and you end up having obesity. It's a very proven fact uh, that immigrant doesn't adapt the body of the immigrant doesn't adapt necessarily to the local food or the local habits of the new country or even the weather. Uh, so um, so what I, what I've realized is that um, and I struggled similarly. I struggled similarly with these with these issues. Like even when I used to live in London, uh, I used to get these uh, winter depression because I don't have enough lights and I, and I got this uh, device that gives you that light. I put it in front of me and then I would have that light and it did, did not really work. I still I still had this winter depression. So even mental health is active. And uh, so what I realized is and also and also I wanted to say is that everywhere I go and I, I would not feel home and I would be looking forward to where I'm going to move next. So it was this emotional process in me that wherever I go and it was usually cities, I lived in cities for the last 20 years, I would feel uh, disconnected. I would feel not at home. And, and the more I spend time with nature, the more I realize actually home for me is to be close to nature. Uh, and I started developing that connection to nature. And, and I, when I decided a year and a half ago that I'm, I'm relocating to a place that I'm going to go home, uh, I looked in many countries and I landed on this beautiful island here in Cyprus because the nature in Cyprus is very beautiful, by the way. It's one of the most beautiful islands in the Mediterranean. But the nature there resembles very much the nature in my home country, Lebanon. It's 25 minutes flight to go from Cyprus to Lebanon. And so you have the sea, you have the mountains, you have the weather, you have the sun. And uh, that transformed my my, my, my mental health. Uh, you know, it enabled me to be much more present. I could have very intense Zoom calls uh, and collaboration virtually. And then I would go and have a walk on the beach and then I would, I would balance life. So that kind of enabled me to. And I realized that what home is for me is this connection to the land and a land that is uh, suited for your DNA. Like I was born in a Mediterranean country. I need the sun. Uh, I need these these uh, these vegetables that grow up in that region and the food that are being produced in that region. So uh, so this is for me, this is a connection to the land. Doesn't matter what is the country or what are these cultural norms. It is really this this connection with the nature that uh, centers me. Yeah, I've, I'm fascinated by Cyprus. I didn't realize until recently that the island is actually subdivided into like Turkey and the country of Cyprus. Is that, that's correct, right? I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a European uh, uh -huh. Greek side and then there's a non-recognized yeah. Turkish occupied non oh, side. Oh, non-recognized. Non-international, ah, okay. you know. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. 
I'm sure Turkey's working, <laughs> working on it. Got it. Okay. Well, that's kind of that's kind of fascinating. And then also, I learned that you can go. I mean, it's it's a relatively small island, and you can go snow skiing, and of course, be you know, if you're on a Mediterranean island, you can be swimming in the ocean um, in a matter of you know what a half an hour or an hour less than an hour or something like that. Is this this is also accurate. That's accurate. And what I'd like to add is that they don't have a lot of pistes, right? So they have maybe three pistes. So it's a very small resort to ski on or to ski in. But if you go if you if you're 25 minutes from from Cyprus, you have Lebanon, and there's like three big resorts, and you have the same thing. You know, a very close resort from the sea, the mountains. So you know, uh, next time you really? think about your ski or holiday, <laughs> think about. Lebanon. I'm bypassing Switzerland and going straight to Lebanon next time. And so, do you travel back to Lebanon much at this stage? Yeah, now I can do it much more often. I'm there every two, three months. Uh, I have a place there, and my parents there, so uh, it becomes much easier uh, to to go back home, home. Yeah, but so you. And so you left when you were 17 and uh, what, what pulled you away? Um, searching for a better economical future, coming from a, a poor background. Uh, the country of Lebanon is actually a failed state today. It's pretty recognized it's a failed state. It's been uh, over 30 years of, well, or more since the civil war, probably like 45 years now of mismanagement and corruption. And uh, so the youth population don't have a lot of opportunities uh, if, they, if they depend on the local government and infrastructure. And that's why remote work is a solution, not only for Lebanon, but for many, many other countries that have corrupt, failed systems. And that's like half of yeah. the world. Countries. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I wondered, I, I kind of assumed, I guess, that there was opportunity, but I, you know, it could have been family, d- dad took a job somewhere else or something. So I wonder, you know, we, you uh, you and I obviously see that now, what a great impact remote work a company like Oyster can have on the youth of a country growing up in a place where they don't see domestic opportunity, but they see opportunity online and, and abroad and, and not have to leave their family behind and not have to leave everything that they know behind. For some people, they might be comfortable with that. Some people might even crave that. I, I was kind of one of those people that, that craved that to, to get away and to go experience other places. And I was for, you know fortunate in that I didn't have to. Um, I won the life lottery in that way, I guess, like I wasn't forced to. But I look at, I see people who have had to overcome those challenges and were forced yeah. to go seek opportunity just to have a chance. And, and I think about them in this in this time. And, and Chase, I want you and the audience to also think about all the others that can't even travel. Yeah. Uh, if you are an, a national of country from like 70% of the world population lives in places where it's very hard to get visas to places like Europe and in the US. Uh, so uh, I know in my home country, everybody who could leave have already left. People mm-hmm. that are left behind are the people that are not able to leave. They cannot get visas. And uh, also the country is 50% of the country are refugees, Syrian and Palestinian that also can travel. So essentially you have 90% of the population is pretty much stuck in a country where there are barely any electricity and no infrastructure and no government. And again, this is this Lebanon story is not unique to Lebanon. It is it is the story of every emerging economy uh, was, was was developing political system to be yeah. correct, politically correct. <laughs> I'm not calling them corrupt. You know, no, no. Politically developed. We don't want system. to be controversial. No, I, I totally understand. Does this like it? I don't know. I, I don't want to like put words in your mouth, but I imagine that all that the things that you're talking about right now on the surface, they don't connect directly to the work that you're doing. But just below that surface, it 
it feels like they do. Is that is that fair to say? They absolutely do. They actually did. So that's why yeah. I'm doing this work uh, because I believe that you don't have to brain drain to be successful. And today, brain drain is responsible for it's a direct cause of inequality in the world. The eighty uh, percent of the population lives in emerging economies where their best people have have to leave uh, the country for a better future. And uh, and suddenly you, st- you still have this imbalance of talent uh, among among countries. And uh, and in 2023, we have we have an opportunity to make a dent in that inequality through the democratization of work opportunities. Yeah, you know, and you, where where did you go when you were 17? When you left Lebanon, where was the what was the path to Paris? To Paris. I went to Paris, studied computer okay. science for five years. I think, um, you know, I, I grew up in the U.S., and I, I also grew up in a very multicultural area in North Central North Carolina, like not like a, I didn't grow up in Brooklyn or something like where you, you maybe connect a lot of cultural activity. I grew up in a midsize city in, in North Carolina. And um, but I, was, I grew up in a, like in a school system that was just surrounded by people from all over the world. A lot of people that didn't speak English, um, you know, a very racially diverse and, and socioeconomically diverse. It was a kind of an interesting place because the school systems are normally set up where you a lot of the schools, everybody kind of looked and sounds and seems the same on the surface. But this the school system that I was in, it had kind of been gerrymandered weird. And anyway, I, I think that served me later in, in life. But, but subconsciously, I always kind of like looking back on it now, I feel like there was this mindset that like all immigrants that wanted to be there, all immigrants that were there wanted to be there. Like like they're lucky. They made the, they made it to the US. This is their dream. You know, they're getting the American dream now and, and they're all so excited to be here. They're, they're thankful. And I have learned through the years that obviously that is not true um, that there is and I'm not even saying I was explicitly told that I'm just saying there was this sense I feel and I meet people from all over the world now I get to interact with them and I get to talk to someone like you who was feeling kind of forced and maybe didn't even get there with with the you know strong desire to be in Paris for example maybe you did I'm just using the example but I think there's this this idea that you have to go to get opportunity like you you don't have another choice if you want to do anything with your life is something that I think has been missed by a lot of people um, that don't have that perspective. Yeah, and you mean we think about you know philosophically, like why why do we have to do this? Like why why do we have like when you're when you're born, you grew up in this world, and then you're you, you, you people tell you you have to find a job, and uh, people send you to school where you're getting ready to enter the economic or phase of your career or your life, and then why why would you want to do that, right? So so essentially, if you if suddenly you are you wake up to this to a world you live in where you're in a country where there's no opportunity, well you you're going to feel. I mean, think about how. how can you feel about right? You would feel you would feel that life has let you down. So, and you want to escape that letting down feeling, and you like so. And all of this is totally unnecessary. Right? If you think about it. Like why we work has to evolve, and has to evolve uh, to be more connected with our purpose and connected with the people we want to work with and care for. And and so so it is um, it is an opportunity to grow personally. You know, all, all these amazing uh, features of work. If you if you're under pressure, an immigrant that you have to go because you're there's no opportunity in your country, then you're not focused on these things. Yeah. And, and it opens up the opportunity to to think beyond just survival and basic opportunity, right? I mean, look what look what you were able to do when you got that space. If had you never left, have you never gone to Paris? I'm sure you've thought about it, like where what path you would have gone on. Uh, maybe you would have ended up building Oyster eventually. Anyway, but I I think it's just when you give like like what is the quote that, you know, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And and so when you embrace yep. that and you really think about that, like on the very human level, 
um, and the impact that it can have when you unlock that that opportunity for everybody and the innovation that can happen and the connections that can happen. It gets really exciting to think about those network effects. Yeah. And, you know, if you still want to travel, please travel, travel for leisure, travel for family, you know, uh, tra travel for work if you need to and you want to. There's no, no problem about that. But uh, uh, but you're not forced to immigrate. You're not forced to live where you don't necessarily want to live. You can be anywhere. We'll be right back to the show after a quick break for a note from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my good friends over at Greenback Tax. As an American citizen, I'm from one of only two countries in the entire world that requires I pay taxes on my global income, regardless of which country I'm actually living in. So when I started my expat journey back in 2015, I knew my tax situation was about to get complicated. Fortunately, I discovered Greenback and I've never looked back. Greenback is 100% focused on helping U.S. expats with their tax situation. And to date, they've filed almost 50,000 returns for nearly 15,000 happy customers from more than 200 different countries. After seven years working together, I can say with confidence that they make one of the most painful parts of life abroad an absolute breeze with their automated systems, friendly advisors, and expertise in the very specific niche of U.S. expat taxes. Also, for those of you who may have fallen behind on your taxes and or you're trying to get ahead of tax season in 2023, Greenback has your back here as well. They can assist with late filings to ensure you don't encounter any problems with the IRS and to make sure you start 2023 off right. Tax season is on the horizon. Learn more about Greenback today by going to greenbacktaxservices.com via the link in the show notes. Hey guys, so many of you write in asking how to support the show best. And if you are listening and made it this far into the episode, then I'm going to presume that perhaps you're one of those people that wants to help. So if that's the case, the best thing you could do right now would be to open up the app that you're currently using to listen to this episode. Go to the little arrow thing that allows you to share, select it and share it to one of your social media networks. That would be a huge, huge help. You can feel free to tag me at DC Warrington and I'll slap you a virtual high five from wherever I am in the world. Thank you so much for the support. We really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy listening to the rest of this episode. How are you guys handling, if you, if you have people in, in all these different countries, do you, you face a, a lot of different challenges with, I don't know, just on a basic level, like internet speed, you know, in, in certain places is better than others. As a, you know, as an organization, how do you tackle these things? Yeah, so we do have very advanced onboarding process for, for our team that we hire and, and we, uh, we do send them whatever equipment they need uh, to, to be effective, whether it's their hardware, their desks, uh, their webcams, and make sure that they are uh, they have the, the internet speed that they need uh, to be effective and and also we try to reduce the amount of live meetings as much as possible we we default to asynchronous collaboration this is our default mode of collaboration and uh, and works well for many functions uh, some functions less but essentially we're also adjusting that to each team as we fine-tuning it to make sure we're effective especially for teams that are customer facing um so and and it's you know it's always continuous in progress like we our asynchronous way of working together is it's it's always work progress and it's always changing uh, and i feel that again as the ceo and the leader of this organization that I need to model the way that I need to always be on the latest techniques of collaboration and communication and, and ensure that my team is disciplined in, uh, in adopting. Yeah, I read some, uh, at some point, I believe you posted something saying that you don't work mornings, um, you're like, uh, which, which I think is fine. If you're a normal employee, maybe someone doesn't think that's shocking, but I think, uh, the archetype of a CEO at a, at a big tech company is, um, is someone that works all day and all night and, and that you tactfully take the time to create your mornings is somewhat of an anomaly. So, um, is that, is that correct? And can you expound upon that? 
Yeah, so uh, I don't work in the mornings. I pick up my daughter at 2 p.m. from school every day. And on Fridays, I don't have any meetings. As we call it, Focus Friday. It's something that every com- company adopts. This is very intentional. Like, so at Oyster, we set your working hours. So everyone needs to set their working hours. And you set them based on uh, your life and your activity. So my team is, uh, the, the direct team I work with are mostly in um, uh, in London and, and, and time zone and also San Francisco time zone. So this is where the time zones of my teams are most of my teams so for me works well to start working in the afternoon and I work till late in the evening and it's also based on my lifestyle because I, I have two toddlers children now as well so I spend I spend in the morning with them I use my morning to do whatever I need to do in my life you know exercise uh, uh, go to the beach and build social connections and so so uh, so that helps me to really balance my life and it's also work in progress as well right? so again so my life is changing so my work needs to support my life and not the other way around. And I want the work to support everyone in my team's life. Are you naturally a workaholic? Like if you don't put the the restraints on? I am. Unfortunately, <laughs> I love what I do. And also I have I have addiction to it at times. It's really a refuge for me sometimes to, to be working. And I, uh, I love I love what I do. Yeah, I think there's like, a, I mean, there's obviously a balance to strike in everything. Um, and there's it's become kind of popular to talk about how like not working hard is almost like not working hard has become cool. And, and therefore, sometimes you get demonized if you're a, if you're one of those people that just has a motor and an addiction to work that it drives you in another way. And I think of course, we just want to work towards a balance. We want to make sure that people don't feel the pressure to work that way. But at the same time, some people are just wired a certain way and, and we need them too. Yeah. And I think here, Chase, what leaders need to do is to be careful about the impact they have on others if they do so. So uh, for instance, there are periods of my work at Oyster where I have to work more hours. Have, uh, so I have to reach some of these uh, remote work principles that we have. Uh, yet it's always very specific period. Let's say we're fundraising, for instance. Um, and and or uh, I make sure that I don't uh, I don't necessarily show up working. Uh, you know, if I schedule my if I want to send emails on the weekend, I, I schedule them to be sent on Monday, so people don't uh, feel that they have to do this. And so uh, be sensitive to the impact you have on others. So, for instance, when somebody uh, slack me, I don't respond right away unless it's urgent. Uh, sometimes I respond a week later, uh, and I want to model the way that I don't expect you to be always on and don't expect me to be always on unless it's urgent. Yeah, especially like the impact that can have. I mean, throughout the organization, but but on like new hires, newish hires, I think is huge. I I know a friend of mine who works at a what you would define as like a successful fintech startup. They're completely remote, or or at least trying to be. And the CEO works twenty four hours a day. I mean, he like almost doesn't sleep. He's on uh, on Sundays, firing off emails and messages, and and he claims you don't have to work on the weekends and you don't have to work late nights. He's like, this is just how I'm doing it. Um, but the guy who my friend, you know, who's on the ground, it's like, well. I, I can't help. I'm, I start working on Sunday. You know, I'm getting emails from the CEO on Sundays. What am I supposed to do? And, you know, and, and so I think being conscious of that impact is is just such a great step for for leaders to be mindful of the the ripple effects of their actions are, are they, they just make bigger waves and it's good to be conscious of it. Yeah, you have to you have to start by do no harm as as principle zero. Right. I mean, again, and that's a lot of work just to uh, be mindful of the impact you have on the organization. You know, we talked about uh, the uh, 
not the not always on culture, uh, but it's also like a, I think for me what's important is how do you create this sense of psychological safety? People are they come to work and they have this image of the leader or the CEO as this fearful individual has power and influence, and that's true in many cases. And at the same time, we want people not to be afraid of you. How, how are you going to build trust if people are reacting to their fear to working with you? And so it becomes really a goal to to create zero zero fear. How, how, what needs to happen that uh, you have this psychological safety in the organization start on the top are there any leaders like uh other business leaders or just leaders in general that you kind of uh learn like it tend to learn from or have taken notes from in this regard uh, look, I was I was very fortunate uh, in my career to have uh, like leadership coaches. I had a leadership coach in my last business, uh, and he continues to help me from time to time. Um, and we we use we've inspired from many many other leaders and and, and um, put many many of them in practice. Uh, but I think I think that like the biggest learning source of learning for me is 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 really it's an inner work inner work as a, as an individual. Like how how do I respond to bad news? How can I be more present? How can I uh, feel the the stress and anxiety, but not let it impact my way I react at work. How can I be conscious about things I say and I do and and and, and be more mindful of the impact on, on others and on the business, right? So this is for me, it's an inner work. It's like a work of self-awareness and, and uh, um, it's a personal development work. And, and this is what I learned most of in the, in the last few years. This has been the biggest source of learning for me is, is how do I react and why do I react and how can I not react or react, respond differently. Yeah, that inner work's vital. Uh, some wise words of uh, wisdom there. So thanks for, for sharing. Um, I know I've got just a, a little bit longer with you. I just want to circle back real quick to, um, there's a lot of questions I actually want to ask about Lebanon and Cyprus and, and a lot of the places you stopped in between. Um, but I'm just going to hone in on the on those first two, on, on Lebanon and Cyprus. So tell me a little bit, you, Cyprus is becoming really well known in this digital nomad world. And a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast have one of two aspirations, one to become a remote worker and, and digital nomad around. And the other is to perhaps, you know, move abroad more more extensively and become like an expat. And I feel like Cyprus is, this is not always the case for European countries, for sure, but just countries around the world. They're not always trying to attract that type of person. And I get the sense that that Cyprus is, and I also understand that you do some work in this, this area. So I'm just curious to hear from your perspective, Cyprus as a destination for expats, nomads, general thoughts, and, and any tips or advice that you want to pass along. Yeah, Cyprus is... Is, uh, is a great place to live and work. Um, I, I've been here for a year and a half and not a day went by where I felt disappointed of this place. Even uh, the laid back culture, like I've learned how to be two minutes late on Zoom calls and not feel bad about it. So <laughs> I learned this in Spain as well, by the way. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Cyprus. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great place to be because uh, nature is abundant. It's not a very highly populated place, even in cities. Um, it is uh, it is cheaper than the European average, uh, the EU average. Uh, it, you, it's an English-speaking country, so you can do everything in English uh, because it was an ex-British colony. Um, and uh, and at the same time, the government is uh, highly motivated to diversify their economy away from tourism. Fifty percent of their economy is tourism, and they see the technology sector as um, 
as a way forward. One is one strategy they have. So they're attracting a lot of technology talent, digital nomads. So they have uh, immigration facilitation. So they help use your immigration process. They have a, a digital nomad visa. Uh, they have a preferred tax rates. Also, they attract you with your tax with, with more uh, favorable tax rates on your income. Uh, they already have no capital gain tax. So this is pretty attractive from a tax standpoint if you want to optimize your income. And you're still living in a European country, right? So you benefit from a European country infrastructure. Uh, the roads are not bad, especially if you like driving in the mountains, as curvy roads. Uh, and you have a very high speed internet. You ha I have fiber here. I live you know, 150 meters from the beach. I have fiber uh, in <laughs> kind of the end of the island uh, near National Park. Uh, so you have 5G network. 5G speed is, 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 is uh, mind blowing. And you have two airports in the country. I mean, it's a small country. There's 1 million people in the whole island. Is that right? Okay. So a million people, you got two airports, technically two countries. I have a, the capital city, I think is like divided part, you know, part Greek, part Turkish. And so, I mean, yeah, that's, this is the wild thing about a place like Cyprus that, you know, like uh, when you compare it to something like a Caribbean island, for example, uh, you know what the whole island's going to look like in, in the Caribbean, but in, in a place like, uh, like Malta was a little bit this way, but I think in a place like Cyprus, you really have this fusion of different cultures, backgrounds, you have different landscapes with mountains and ocean and history and food and i mean it's just it's it's a lot of diversity and packed into a small place you know you're right there you're like you said your 25 minute flight to lebanon but you're in the european union um this is kind of an amazing thing and the weather the weather is amazing 300 years of sunshine a, uh, 300 days of sunshine a year you know imagine myself i lived in london for 14 years right and this, this is like nirvana for me and for the, uh, the for the guy that needed the sunlight <laughs> you needed yes. that sunlight on your desk back in london you you no longer needed in Malta. I mean, in, uh, in Cyprus. It's amazing. And last question. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people are, you're going to be more familiar with Lebanon than the average listener. So I would love to leave people with uh, with, with something they may not know about about your home country and uh, and, and maybe something that you're you're proud of about being from there. Um, but just to give people a sense of, wh of what it means to be, be from Lebanon and, and the way that you view Lebanon from they're your neighbor now living right there in Cyprus, I think would be interesting. I'd, I'd hate it if I didn't ask you that while you're here. Yeah, something I've learned recently about Lebanon, a fa fun fact is that our national animal is the striped hyenas. And I think I've never saw any of that alive. Apparently that's what Wikipedia is saying. And so that's that's a fun fact. And look, Lebanon, is, is it has a beautiful nature similar to, to Cyprus, especially as you go up in the mountains. Uh, the It's, however, seven times denser than, than Cyprus. There are seven million people that live on, a, on, on the country, which is the same similar surface area than Cyprus. So it feels much more dense, especially when you are in cities. Cities there are crowded, uh, but highly alive uh, places. Culture is very strong there. And um, so, um, so yeah, that, that's, that's what about Lebanon. As I said earlier, it has a, a failed state. Currently, it's a failed state. So you, uh, the infrastructure is very poor. Uh, so roads and electricities are, are really poor. Most people have actually took this opportunity to transition to solar power, which is great. I think this crisis happened to Lebanon recently in the last few years, which is the currency is, is a major issue, uh, have led uh, the government to really disappear when it comes to services and the citizens have uh, took responsibility more uh, of their lives and uh, solar power is growing fast in a country that benefit from, again, similar weather than Cyprus. Um, yeah, and also what is, for me, something I'm, it's kind of weird to say that, but something that I benefit from Lebanon from was the fact that um, you, you're really confused about who you are. Uh, like, you know, when you grew up in Lebanon, like Lebanon exists for like 100 years as, as a country, so First, it's not a long history and it is extremely diverse from a 
religious standpoint, there's like 19 different religions. The most of them are like a couple of Christians ones. There's uh, two, three different variations of Islam for a country that is maybe less than 4 million Lebanese people. So you're always growing up, growing up as, as, as from this sect, from this tribe. And there's really a relationship to, to your national identity is, is, is weird. Um, and that enabled me to be maybe fit better as I, I left the country, uh, is to not attach too much to my identity as Lebanese, but enabled me to really uh, maybe branch out much quicker to realize actually I'm, I'm a citizen of the planet and I identify more with the, uh, with the olive tree and the turtle in the sea than in maybe other human beings that has a similar passport than I am. Right? So that enabled me to have that ego flexibility uh, to look at myself in a more flexible way. I've found that really interesting and have in a slightly different way, but definitely related, found that for myself and a lot of people that I've talked to through running the show who, who've made the move to different countries or whatnot, they, they step away from their tribe, so to speak, but then they kind of find their tribe or they or they step away from where they identified with and they think they have this this identity that they're holding on to and then they go somewhere foreign and, and they, they kind of refine themselves in a, in a new way and learn those kind of things about themselves and maybe connect with other people or or fish in the sea or whatever it may be but they connect with with others that they probably wouldn't have if they had stayed back you know the the ship in port so to speak so like there's there's something special about pushing yourself out into that uh, uncomfortable zone and and seeing what shines through in your own personality yeah especially if you want to lead uh, people from all over the world like you have to quickly unlearn all the biases and the filters that you had growing up being identified as from country x so the, the, the faster you unlearn that and you identify these biases, the more you are on your track to be this leader of Vapor's team. It creates inclusive, you become an inclusive leader and uh, um, and the world needs more of that. You know, you, you need more this ability of leaders to, to step out of what they thought the world looked like. Yeah, I think it's a real skill set that's going to become extremely valuable. It sounds like you agree. I, I talk to all these like nomad families, you know, like people who have who have moved around the world with their kids or maybe they they tend to change countries every few years. And so their kids are getting all this exposure to people from to other kids from other parts of the world. And they're getting exposure to different school systems and learning different languages and such. And I think like what a valuable set of skills that's going to be in like 20 years when they're when they're 30 years old and maybe leading a team of their own to, to have that empathy to be able to connect with someone across a cultural border that they don't even, they may not otherwise even see exists, um, or be able to understand a different accent or speak a different language or whatever it may be. I mean, these are, um, these are, these are going to become very valuable in this new way of working, I think. And I, for me, that's like really exciting. I, I get, I get very, uh, get pretty excited about that. Yeah, me too. I, I believe that uh, you know, cultural differences are overrated. And uh, uh, yeah, I was asked recently uh, by one of my ex-professors in business school. She's writing a new case on this massive planetary level diversity. And uh, she was telling me about uh, what are your tips to leaders to deal with cultural differences is my tips is that is to, is to agree that this is not a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let, go. Let go. Let go. That idea that it is something in the way of collaboration and connection. Yeah. That's it. Did, have you ever read the book, The Culture Map, by any chance? 
No. By Aaron Myers. I bet you would love it. It's uh, it's one of my favorites, and it actually really helped me in um, in, in working at Duis, just seeing some things. Uh, and sh- the, the message is is very similar to what you're saying. It's almost like you know, don't overvalue the the cultural differences. Like if okay, you know, maybe maybe there's there's a little difference here or there, but more than more than likely, you can find some common ground. Uh, even if even if things seem a little bit different, and here's why things might seem a little different. And you know, people that grow up in Denmark versus someone that grows up in uh in Argentina and how they might approach the same problem. But it really, it was really fun to, to dive into. And, yeah. Um, and shift your attention of what's in common instead yeah, of shifting yeah. your attention to what's different. That's There's it. There's so many more things in common between humans, among humans, than we, we thought it is. And the fact that we believe that there are the cultural differences uh, makes us not see what is in common, or the, the, the common needs of what we have. Like think about humans at work. What do they need? They need to feel safe. They need to have purpose. They need to feel trusted. Uh, they need to uh, know uh, what success looks like. You know, they need, to, um, they need to be respected and so on and so forth. I mean, these are like basic human needs that, that, are, that, that, that are cross-culture. So focus there. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful way to uh, to wrap this up on a on a show called About Abroad. Uh, so I uh, I really appreciate it, Tony. This is this is awesome and so much fun. A lot of you shared a lot with us today and a lot of uh, wise words. So much appreciated. Um, I think most people listening probably they they can they know you they know Oyster, but please leave uh, leave them with where they can follow along and reconnect and, and follow the journey a little bit closer. And we'll put all these links in the show notes as well. Thank you, Chase. Thank you, everyone, for having he- having me here. Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn, uh, Tony Jamis, uh, and or you can uh, find us at OysterHR.com. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Tony. Have a have a great rest of the day in sunny Cyprus. I'm up here in cold Germany. I'll be. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chase. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links. Aboutabroad.com slash newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed. Or ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me, it also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.